Financial freedom is something so many people dream of, but it can involve some tough decision-making. Today, we're talking money and making the good decisions that can get us there. I'm Callie Youngstrom, and this is Keep Yourself Well. My guest today has a very impressive resume. Shannon Lee Simmons is a certified financial planner, a chartered investment manager, a certified life coach, a public speaker, and the founder of the award-winning New School of Finance. The wife and mom of two is also a best-selling author of Worry-Free Money and Living Debt-Free, and most recently just released a new book called No Regret Decisions, which is all about making good choices in tough times, something we can all use a little help with. Let's get into it. Hi, Shannon. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> well, I mean, it's an honor. I was just saying uh, you were on the Marilyn Dennis show earlier this week. So I truly feel like I get the chance to sit down with a celebrity at this point. <laughs> and uh, I always start the always start the episodes with the very, very uh, open ended question of how do you keep yourself well? Great question. Uh, I personally, it's a work in progress. So I, I think every year I try to pivot that because what I need changes depending on what's going on in my life, what's what's happening. So I've got two little kids. I've got two little boys, three and five. So things are bananas. Plus I'm a business owner. Um, it's busy. So I think what I do to keep myself well is I try very hard um, to find I don't work on the weekends anymore. This has been a major shift for me. I was definitely a workaholic and um, it just, when my kids, when I, once I had kids and I just couldn't. And so that's been a huge thing. So even though it's just the two days, it's a real break. Um, and I, we also at New School of Finance, that's the business I run. We went to a four day work week as of January 1st of 2022 last year. And so I take Wednesday, which is the middle day of the week off to just like do admin. Um, I don't know, go for a coffee with my friend, like some sort of grown up adult time for me. That's not necessarily just like taking kids to play dates. Um, and so those things have been huge shifts for me. That's really helped me feel like I have I'd, like um some space for me. That's That's been a huge shift for me. Good for you. That's incredible advice. Well, and I think it's so important that we hear incredibly successful moms and entrepreneurs and people doing it all give us permission in a sense to take that time. So that's a very refreshing reminder for all of us. I think it's, I actually think I'm a better business owner, parent, writer, financial planner because of it. What I didn't realize um, before is I was burning it so hard um, for so many years that I actually was like headed towards burnout. Also, like you end up in this space where you just are like, you shut down and start saying no to everything or like yes to everything. And there's like very extremes um, when you're in that place. And so I actually think it makes me a better all around person to have that little bit of like me time and a break um, from that where I can just like be myself at home. Um, so yeah, I, I'm a big fan. And if, for anybody who's running a business out there, if you're wondering if a four day work week is awesome, my team at work is obsessed and I feel like we're all happier because of it. Every single one of us is like happier and that means happier clients. And that means that the business works. So that whole thing, worry about like, what if we don't make money? If we 
take a day down. I mean, not for every business, it's not a one size fits all, but I would, I would suggest looking at your stuff and thinking like, really, could we do this and trying it? And the worst case scenario is it doesn't work. If everybody on your team is like willing to experiment and then it doesn't work, um, try that out. Good for you. Well, it is very progressive for Canada, especially because I'm trying to remember where in Europe, I feel like Denmark, maybe somewhere was experimenting with it. So I feel like Europe's been leaning towards that a little bit more. And I mean, even in certain cultures, like doing siesta and taking a break. And what do you know, people show up more refreshed and more productive I think that's the time we we kind of virtue signal like butt in desk for more hours means more work, better work, better quality, better productivity, which as you've seen is, you know, clearly not the case. No, I, I think that whole system started because it was like based on productivity as in like actual physical output, like if you're making like a widget or something. But if we're talking so much of our jobs now is like um content creation and like about having creative thought or like putting something out your brain to work, not necessarily like like um physically making something as much as like an hour in the chair would do would would necessarily mean more more something um so that could be more tricky in that in that in a goods based business but if you're in the if you're in a service based business it's just it's like you need your brain to think mm. you can't think Absolutely. Well, I'm sure that was almost like the assembly line model when the nine to five exactly. work week became generalized. So that's amazing. And I mean, it sounds like you have, I don't want to say learn the hard way, but learn through trial and error, not only what works for you as a business owner, but as an entrepreneur and, you know, a mom. So the hours that you may have kept and how you kept yourself well without kids may have looked very different, I'm sure, than it does now needing that time for yourself and for your family. Yeah, it was a lot more extreme. It was like extreme hard effort and then like extreme wellness. So it would be like, oh, I'm going to go to yoga every day and I'm going to do this every day. Like it was a lot more extreme. Whereas now every I'm just softer to myself. I'm just softer around the edges in every way. I just, it's like, it's just more kind. So oh, yeah. um it's just a little bit of grace for myself. And that, that has been a lesson learned over time that I don't think 10 year, years ago, me would, would have said something like yeah. that. <laughs> I love that you use those two words, kindness and grace. I think that those are such highlights and you just made a great point too, knowing that it's kind of the new year's season. And I feel like everyone's doing the resolution thing. It's okay. Not yoga every day, but maybe yoga once a week, or even the self-care that you mentioned going for a coffee with a friend, self-care doesn't always have to be the in the gym or in the kitchen or, you know, doing that type of thing, giving yourself that time. So you are a mom to two kids, three and five boys, but also three books. I don't know how you've managed to do all of that on this timeline, Uh, because with three and five-year-olds, your latest book, No Regret Decisions, Making Good Choices During Difficult Times, just came out January 3rd. So somehow with a three and five-year-old, you managed to write, publish, and now promote a brand new book. So I'm convinced that you are superhuman. Um, <laughs> how does that feel to have the latest book out? And because on the other side of a pandemic, let alone motherhood and everything else you have going on as a business owner. It's a huge achievement. I, I, I really am so proud of this book. It almost didn't happen. I almost quit four times. Um, I I uh, signed the book deal the day the schools closed, like March 2020. Wow. And then like, you know, my littlest guy was six months old and my oldest one wasn't even three yet. And and then it, I, I like 
it was, it was every, everybody was stressed at that point, but also having kids and the weight of this and the weight of, uh, you know, people, well, my clients reaching out, they're getting laid off and all this stuff it was really hard. And so I almost quit this book like four times. I tried, I even sent emails <laughs> being like, I want to quit the book. And everybody at HarperCollins, my agent, they were so kind. They were like, just take however much time you need, like just whatever, get it whenever you can. And so I, um, I felt like Chandler when he wants to quit the gym. I was like, I want to quit the book though. <laughs> they just were so nice. Anyways, I finished and um, it was, I mean, not to be silly about it, but it was truly a series of like no regret decisions to not do this because what was happening to me during that time, like a bit of a personal crisis, actually, if I'm honest, during that first, like the height of that, the first lockdowns in 2020 um, was that I was making all these like panic based decisions basically. So I was like, well, we have to move. Oh, well, I have to quit my business. Oh, I've got to quit the book because like, I was just trying to like lower the stakes of every life. Um, cause it was so overwhelming. And, um, and then part of the book even talks about this, about making those kind of black and white panic based decisions and how they can lead to long-term outcomes that you regret. And so really making sure that when you're making big decisions in your life with the emotional and financial stakes being high, that you're doing it from like not a place of panic and you're doing it for the right reasons. And actually writing this book, I was listening to an interview that I did, or not an interview, a, a session I did with a client from like 2019. So like pre-pandemic, blah, blah, blah. And she was divorcing and she was trying to make these decisions around buying a house in her, in her neighborhood, blah, 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 all this stuff. And I'm listening to the advice I'm giving this, this client of mine. And I'm so calm and so kind and so empathetic. And I'm like, you know, are you making a panic-based decision? And like, what are the values that you're going to hang your hat on on this if it doesn't work out? And I'm listening and I'm thinking, oh my God, I have to follow my own advice because <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here with a real estate agent hunting for houses right now at three in the morning, like try to move out of the city because I'm afraid the parks will never open. Like talk about a panic-based decision for myself. So anyways, this book in a weird way is my favorite book. Not only do I think it's so wonderful as in like, I'm really proud of the content, but also it was a bit of a lifeline for me um, it was a bit of a therapy for me myself writing it while I was in my own personal crisis, writing about difficult times. Um, there was something truly like cathartic about, about it. And it felt like during the height of COVID too, my thing. So, you know, media was for helping other people. New school was for helping other people. Momming was for helping other people. The community was for helping other people. And the book felt like my escape to do just for me. And so there are these stolen moments of writing where there, where it was like 11 at night and it was just me with a T and it was like, I'm just like bursting and crying while I'm writing kind of thing. So it was like pretty cathartic. Congratulations. I mean, any day of the week, it is an absolute accomplishment to write one book, let alone three, let alone to follow through with it, with all of that. And I think that's so beautiful because even the most successful people, clearly we need to see examples of that, that there are those like, oh shit, I don't want to do this. What am I doing? Like, I can't do this moments. And, you know, one step at a time, you kept going. And it it sounds like you had an amazing team surrounding you as well. So, wow. My team at at work is amazing. And they, they have, they have allowed me to do those other, those things. And also I have um, a really strong, like my mom is like my my mom and my husband are very supportive of all of my, I love the roller coaster I put them on. <laughs> so I feel very lucky. Good. Well, I'm glad that you were able to lean on that. And I mean, thank on behalf of all of us, I'm so grateful that that was something that was felt so for you in the moment, because now the benefit is that it's also gets to be for all of us and we all get to learn from your amazing writing. So I would love to know because you started 
publishing books in 2017. Uh, so before kids, you've started publishing and then, you know, a few books and a couple of kids. So what do you feel like has been the biggest surprise since you started publishing books, transitioning from finance, how you're doing it kind of day to day to publishing? And then amidst pandemic, I'm sure that was a surprise nobody saw coming. <laughs> yeah, no, I still see clients every day. That's what pays my mortgage. Um, so, so like the actual day to day, I still give financial advice on a daily. Um, the books are, as I said, this side. So, I never expected a book deal, ever. Um, the first one, Worry Free Money, which um, again is a real soft spot in my heart. It's a fantastic book too. Uh, that idea had been brewing in my head for years and I've always been a writer. I like can read my like grade seven diary is like a manifesto. It's just, I've always been really able to articulate emotion and, uh, and, and like use good analogies. And I think that that's really done me well in the financial industry where you don't see that a lot. So I think that's what makes it kind of folksy and approachable. And then worry-free money. I started noticing these like trends among clients that was like, doesn't matter if you're rich or barely getting by um there are these same similarities around how people approach money and there's like this kind of like solutions that help no matter what situation you're in and I wanted to put those in a book so that's how that was born and it was never to become a writer it was just that my day job of sitting on the front line of financial planning you start to see trends that no one else sees everyone everyone sees themselves in a silo but when you see thousands of people's lives play out over 15 years you really start to notice the similarities, the differences, who's thriving, who's not, what's similar about them, what's not similar, what advice, what worked, what 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 changed people's lives and what didn't. And then you can package that together into a into like a really solid solution or a book that can help lots of people because it's like you say that you hear yourself saying the same thing over and over again, right? Yeah. No matter who the person is. Um, and so the books have always been the side gig of the main gig, which is New School of Finance. And they are my creative outlet. So in a financial world where things can be a little drawing, uh, not not where I, I try to keep them as fun as possible, but, um, you know, th- there's an element of that. I think the books have been this space for me to play out um, my writing, my creativity, that obsessive compulsive war of art that people have where you really want to like lose yourself in a project um that it has that for me and then it also leads to like speaking and stuff which scratches my like performance itch so that's always the stuff on the side that um it it fuels my my own passion basically so they're the books are passion projects um and they also they feed my soul and then they also feed new school which pays my bills (laughs) i mean that's a beautiful thing because i think you're exactly right we do have this i mean i have a my commerce degree was in marketing. So maybe on the surface seems slightly less traditionally dry than people assume finance or, you know, accounting to be. But I think that you found this really amazing balance of getting to do it all through the funnel of finance, right? Like you get to write and get to have this performance base. That's amazing. And just shows the breadth that you can have within a finance career, which I think is really inspiring. And as a female, I really resonate with that you are a female in finance, giving financial advice. And like you said, that small emotional component, it comes through where I'm like literally seeing through my peripheral vision over here, this stack of like rich dad, poor dad, and all the like traditional finance books where I think 
we lose people in them because they are a little dry. So I think that's incredible. And so your first two books were very specifically about finance and contain advice, like in, in those practical ways, financially, what drew you to write this book, which I know touches on finance, but is more about decision-making in like generalized ways as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's all, so like the first two, yeah, are like worry-free money is a financial book for everyone to like have how to run your money in a way that doesn't feel so stressful anymore. Living debt-free, very specifically, how to be no shame, no blame guide to getting rid of debt. That says it all in the title. Um, And this one is the result of, okay, I came up, this idea was born in 2019, like before the pandemic. So it's very good if everyone's like, such good timing for a no regrets book, given the uncertainty. I'm like, I had no idea the economic uncertainty and post-pandemic world that we would be living in when I when we put this book together or the idea, the original book became because what's happened in my life over time, over my 15 years on the front line of financial planning has been um, people pull me in. I'm also a certified life coach and people pull me into conversations that are like very high stakes. So my partner is leaving me. We're divorcing. Can I buy the matrimonial home? This is a hugely charged conversation that is emotionally high stakes, financial high stakes, which is why I'm involved in the first place and a completely uncertain outcome. Okay. So these are the kinds of decisions that this book deals with, or like my parent is moving in with me because they're very sick. What, what's up now? I'm I'm becoming a caregiver. What now? Right. Or someone, there's a death in the family or even good stuff. Like I want to sell my, I want to quit my job and start my own business. Like, high financial stakes, high emotional stakes. What if it fails? What if it wins? Like these kinds of conversations I have on a daily basis with people that are at these points in people's lives where they have to make decisions and they're either overwhelmed, um, nervous, scared, and they don't want to make the wrong decision. And everything is still in like, you don't know how things are going to play out on the other side. And so I've been having those kinds of conversations with people for so long. And what I really realized is that it's almost like the next layer of money. So it's like the first one is like the peripheral, like dealing with that day-to-day stuff. And 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 then the set, like now it's like, what's underneath those major decisions? Because your day-to-day life will look different when something like this happens to you. Like there's a life throws you a curveball or something, something goes on. So I really wanted to speak to those kinds of financial decisions. And they are financial decisions, but they're also deeply emotional. And um, And I've noticed over the years too, People who made decisions, let's say that they, you know, they, they were getting divorced or they quit their job to start a business, which I did myself. Um, and sometimes it works out and sometimes it does not. And the, when it works out, it's easy to look back and have no regrets, isn't it? Even if like, even if you made a default decision, like you, life happened to you and it just, you got lucky and it worked out. It's easy to look back and say, oh, that's, I did that. If things don't work out the way you wanted them to, that's when it's an opportunity for regret to creep into your life. And what I really noticed um, with clients over the years is that those who look back and regret what they did because they didn't like the outcome and they blame themselves and they think, I made a poor decision, I did this to myself, that then overshadows everything that they think about the future. Because they don't trust themselves to make good decisions when life throws a curveball their way. And then there becomes this almost day-to-day, or I call it the 3 a.m. 
dreads um about like bad things happen being really afraid of life throwing you a curveball because you don't actually trust that you're going to handle it the way that you want to and and so there's a day-to-day anxiety about like what if this happens to me well what if that happens what if that happens and people who made decisions and it didn't work out who look back and say huh well it didn't work out but i made the best decision i could at the time given the situation that was going on and i don't regret that decision so the whole point of the book is like make sure that you're a person who can look back no matter what happens to you and say you know what it was a good decision with a bad outcome instead of it was a bad decision that led to a bad outcome and that means a happier life a more confident life making future financial decisions and a life of more hope and optimism than anxiety and fear. Wow. That's such amazing advice. I love that sentiment. And I mean, I think it's so incredible that you saw these patterns in finance that allowed you to, you know, be inspired for, well, all of your writing, but then these patterns just in, we're all humans experiencing life. And there are oh, the yeah. common threads that we go through that you can now give guidance. And so where in your timeline, did the life coaching come into play? Because I think that's such a unique and brilliant combination to be a financial professional and advisor and life coach, because yes, those are one in the same. Yeah. Uh, I'm like an OG certified life coach. Like we're talking back in 2008, uh, when I was still working on Bay street, um, which is like wall street in Canada. Um, and when I was working at my old job that I quit to start my own business, I had this unbelievable mentor. She was amazing, like corner office, total boss. I loved her. And she basically, when I started working on Bay Street at this like high, high role in financial company, they were great. I have nothing bad to say about it. Um, she was like, you know, just propelled my career. She, she gave me so much autonomy. She was wonderful. Anyways, at the time I had found financial planning and because finance, finance in general was like, I'm good at math. I like numbers but the application of it was not resonant with me in the investment world. Um, I didn't love the analytics part. Um, I wasn't like obsessed with watching the stock market, which I think everyone thinks I should be, but I'm absolutely not. And then I discovered private client where you get to like apply numbers to a person's life. And that is what really just like burst open and woke me up that like I could still be a person and use my degree in my letters and be with people and help and, and like do that satisfying work through financial planning, which is like only a small branch of the whole wealth management industry. And at the time she was also doing um, wealth management with high net worth clients. And she was really ahead of her time. And she was doing this life coaching thing, which at the time nobody had really heard of. Like we had heard of it, but it was like, people were like, whoa, what the hell is that? Like very, like not a household term. Okay. And she was a partner at the firm and she was like, do this with me. Like, I want, I want you to do this with me. And I like, like as part of our team. So I did it back. Like I, I was like 24 or 23 years old and I went and got certified as a life coach. And then after when we got bought out by another company and I realized I didn't really want to work within the big banking systems anymore. Um, I quit to start new school of finance and I was already armed with all of my letters and I was already a certified life coach. And so that I think from day one, that's why I'm so different. Um, I truly believe we're coaching. That's what people come in. I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, that's why I'm passionate about it because you're actually helping people plan their lives. Money is how we afford to go on a vacation with our family, go to school, start a family, buy a house, sell a house, whatever. It's all about money, but it's actually about the people. Good for you. I mean, I think that's something that we all 
wish that we had to have a better relationship with money. And I think there's so much fear in it. And it just sounds like you really do an amazing job taking the fear out of it. And because you're only one person and can, I mean, you do so much, but you can only work with so many individual clients. New year, same low carb, sugar-free and gluten-friendly options at Sweet and Sprouted. If you want to get a better for you option into the mix, Sweet and Sprouted has everything you need in healthy alternatives to your traditionally sugar-filled faves. Sweet and Sprouted ensures you can have your cake and eat it too by offering groceries, ingredients and baked goods to fill any craving. Visit them in store or avoid the cold and shop online anytime. Sweet and Sprouted is offering you 10% off your next order with the code wellness10. That's 10% off at sweetensprouted.com using promo code wellness10. So the fact that you've provided us all with these books to give us that reinforcement, I think is just incredible. And I'm assuming that a lot of the practices around making stressful financial decisions, you apply through other decisions. So do you have a specific process or like a decision-making funnel, anything that you could give a little advice about? And then of course, we're all going to go read your book to get the nitty gritty of it all. Absolutely. I mean, the book is truly, I call it, it was almost called um, like the decision playbook. That was a working title for quite a while. (coughs) Um, Like your guide to no regret decisions, because it really is a decision playbook uh, chapter by chapter with like, or actually like a, like a, a playbook that you can read. So I'll, t- I'll give you some of the tips on it. The most important thing that I've seen over my years of doing this, and even in my own life, <laughs> uh, is not to make those panic-based decisions. <clears throat> Sometimes when things are happening, uh, let's take let's take an example. Let's say somebody bought a house in a bidding war in 2021 when the housing market was so high and they bought that house because they were, you know, the pandemic was just wearing on them and um, they bought it, they got into a variable mortgage and now things are very expensive, right? Like their mortgage has gone up by $1,500 a month. This is like a real person I just talked to like yesterday. Um, and they are in tears all the time and panicking and like looking at that decision. So let's take two, there's two possible outcomes here. So one, if that person bought the house during that 20, during 2021, 2020, when they were uh, in a panic place. So meaning that the only reason they did it was because and paid the the price that they did was because they were afraid the pandemic was never going to end, and um, they were pressured into it from family, and like 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 uh, it felt like they had to do it right. So those are those are all panic based reasons. It's a reaction versus the versus like a planned thing. That person is is going to regret that they did that because that decision doesn't actually reflect anything about them. And now they're in this shit situation and they're like, why did I do that? Mm. Versus the same exact scenario, same price for the house, same interest rates, skyrocketing, whatever. However, imagine the person had been wanting to leave the city for years and the pandemic just really was like, you know what? Now is the time. And they're like, well, the housing is expensive right now, but we've been wanting to do this for years. We can do this. We can afford it. Um, And it's right where my family is. My sister lives down the street. And let's just pull the trigger, even though it's not the best timing and hope for the best. They do that. They move. Same thing. Mortgage is up $1,500 a month. They're not going to sit there and look at that decision and say, we never should have moved. They're going to look back at that decision and say, man, that was the right decision. But man, I hate this outcome those are different on a different trajectory in their life right so i think i think it's not really about the outcome because we can't control anything in this world and we don't have a crystal ball 
what we really want to control is, our, um, is um, the the risk of making panic decisions. So number one part of the playbook, the whole part one deals with not being in panic mode. And one thing I learned about myself personally, while I was in my like own little personal crisis there during the height of like 2020 COVID is where I almost moved my family, <laughs> uh, which for me would have been a panic based decision, not the right one for my, for me and my family. Um, you can just get out of panic mode and you're like, well, I'm out getting out of a pool it's kind of like a, a mindful practice almost every day and so the book gives tips on how to do it just to pull yourself out of the fear and anxiety for like a hot minute so you can like see options and get into a growth mindset instead of being in that like i have that that panic place so one of the uh tips that it talks about is like creating a circle of care for example um so one of the things i've noticed with clients um is that when something happens to you you're in a situation or you're in a situation um like let's say you want to quit your job and start a business okay and your whole family works in the civil servant. One's a police officer, one's a teacher, one's a nurse. Do you think that that circle of care, who's normally very supportive of your life, is really going to fundamentally understand what you're going through? You know what I mean? Like they might be supportive, but at, at that time in that decision crisis, you might want to meet or get some support from people who have done what you've done so, so they can tell you, here's what we're up to. Here's a good, bad, and ugly of it. Two are about to do the same. So they're sharing that trepidation. They're sharing that anxiety. They have the same fears as you. And you can kind of talk about it over and over again without exhausting people. And so a circle of care when you're in a decision crisis is really surrounding yourself with people who are in the exact same situation as you. Not, and that might not necessarily be your existing support group because um, they'll understand it. And that's a way to kind of bring yourself out of panic mode and like make yourself feel safe. And then it might, I feel like I'm going on. But um, the, um, another little tip is, dealing with things on like a micro timeline so sometimes other things like um if you have to make some deci big decisions uh it can be overwhelming when you think about the pathway to what's possible down the road like if i make this decision how this could play out it could be endless fear and anxiety about how what what could go wrong and what if what if what if what if what if like let's think about the next three days and then let's think about the next three weeks after that and like like really trying to set goals and timelines around a small frame time frame so that you feel like you can control something and you feel like you have some say and you can predict anything because what you're telling your your brain basically at that point you're like i have some control or at least the illusion of control i have some predictability when everything feels so uncertain so that's another really solid tip that uh, i go into in detail and like how we can apply that in our financial life and also in our emotional life too that's an amazing advice. I love that you created this playbook. And I think you're, you know, you're giving people that, how do you start taking action? So how do you deal with the resistance people have when they have that fear of money and they're coming from a lacking mindset and maybe don't feel like they can afford a financial planner or afford to do any investing? Because even from a coaching perspective, working with wellness clients, you know, I feel that resistance a lot. And of course, you see the benefit long term, and I yeah. can see the benefit long term. So how do you deal with that overarching fear of just wanting to hold on to everything when you know that you can be doing something better with that money? That's a great question. I think, uh, well, there's a couple of layers there, like, uh, as far as uh, things that I do, because um, yeah, we're an advice only financial planning firm, which means people pay out of pocket. And so that's a, it's a different, when you go to a bank, they're, getting paid by the products they're selling so you don't actually like send an e-transfer right so it feels free but it's not but it feels free 
So somebody that wants to get their financial life in order, but it's like, okay, but I have to pay for time like that doesn't compute in my brain, you know? So there's a couple of things. So one, I mean, just from a business point of view, you make different levels of accessibility. So like books, for example, or like the online courses is a, is a lot, a lower kind of um, financial, uh, it's more, more financially accessible. So somebody has access to your information. But I think when it comes to, and so that's what I've done to solve that problem is like, okay, well, if you don't want to get the one-on-one, then here's all the other places you can get access to great advice and information for a fraction of the fee. Um, the other thing though, is like, if it's an investment, for example, uh, in the, the long game, how do you focus on the long game, even though you're short term terrified, which is, I think what we're, we're all talking about that, right? Um, I think that there's two things there. So number one, the book also talks about um, setting things called like pivot points and money guardrails. So I think, so I think that if you know, well, I guess it's it's twofold. So I'm going to finish that thought and then I'll, I'll, I'll circle back. Essentially, like when you're making a big decision, if you're worried about investing to and losing money or um, like continuing to wait to do something and like losing something or like it's, it's spending too much money on something, you can kind of set these things called guardrails in advance. So it's like, okay, well, I'll spend up to $500 to see if this works. And then if it doesn't, if I'm not seeing anything that if I don't feel like it's going anywhere by then, then I'll call it. So, or like, I'm willing, it's the same thing that people do in investing in stocks and stuff like that. Like, okay, it's when you put in, when you try to buy a stock, you can sometimes, um, you put in like the top price and the low price. So it's like, if it drops to this, you sell. And if it goes to this, you sell. So it's like, you're kind of protecting yourself in the future from making an emotional decision. Cause you decided that when you were in a really rational state of mind, it's kind of like doing that. And so I feel like I do that with a lot of people as far as their decision-making, not necessarily using my services, but like as far as their decision making, like how far are you willing to go until it's so far you'll regret it? So how long or how how much are you willing to lose or spend until you're like, I don't ever want to do this. I, this was a, like, I'll regret it. And you'd be interested. It's interesting to see how people think about loss of money. So the example that I use in the book is like, a, it's a fertility, like my, my client was going through IVF and it's very expensive and um, no guarantees. And so it's kind of like, before it all begins setting that boundary in way in advance in that headspace that's not panicking and um and saying like how far are you willing to go financially um until you pivot your plans or or do things like that and so that when you hit that you know that you did everything that you can so try so setting those in advance i think is a really good way and then last but not least if you're sitting in a situation where you're just like i can't afford anything right now then i think that that's where um, I think honestly, I feel like trying, I, I honestly, I, I'm a big believer in, um, I think right now these days we have too much information out there and people think that there's so much free information that like, why would you pay anybody for, for anything? And I actually think that that's the opposite. I think right now we need curated information more than ever because it's actually, there's so much of it out there mm-hmm. that you can stress yourself out um and freak yourself out so easily by just being overwhelmed by the she- everyone has their two cents too right and so it's like do i do it this way or this way well this person on this blog said this and this person on this blog said this and then this person on this blog said this and like how do you know what's right for you and so i've i'm a firm believer that like a like one one source trusted trusted source an ally um of like whether it's wellness information or financial information or anything um, it's like, you don't have 10,000, like think about WebMD. It's the same thing. 
you can Google your symptoms so the cows come home, but like, shouldn't you go to one person who's going to be like, this is what's actually going on other than, rather than 3am scrolling WebMD, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I think that, I think people, I hope people um, invest in themselves that way. I couldn't agree more. I see it all the time in wellness and I call it analysis paralysis because you yes. can only absorb so much, you know, personal development information before it's literally all conflicting. And then you just take action on nothing. So right. this is why I really love too, that you're accessible. You do interviews, you have videos, you have online courses, books, doing podcasts like this, because people get to know you personally. And then when you resonate with that one person, it's like, okay, this is my, I trust Shannon and she will be my financial sage. And, you know, so yeah. I think your life coaching expertise just, you know, can only go so like help that so much. And you living life and experiencing life and being able to share the personal experiences of being a mom and being an entrepreneur and having those fears of with COVID that, you know, oh. everybody was doing the panic thing. So I'd love to know more about where the new school of finance came from. And especially as a woman, because I, I mean, I can only imagine and I shouldn't assume, but you can tell me more. Um, but I imagine that the financial side of things, especially on Bay Street, for example, is still very much an old boys club, for lack of a better word, although changing and shifting. So where did the new school of finance come from? And how was being a woman in finance part of that story? Okay, so I definitely as I would say, especially when I started when I was working on Bay Street, it was like a it was actually a, an old boys club. Um, and it was just like the, the times, right? Uh, it wasn't anything. It was just the way it was. There was lots of women that were there though. Like, but that you, you know, they came up in the eighties and nineties and like they, that was hard. Do you know what I mean? It was hard to have a family. It was hard to set those boundaries. It was all of that stuff. So I feel like mine might've been the first generation where people were like, not leave is a year and that's okay. And, and because there was women in leadership positions, and so even though it was few and far between, and I think one of the things that's really important to me is that, um, like the new school of finance started because of the, uh, 2008, 2009 crash, like the great recession, that one that happened like 12, 13 years ago now. Uh, oh my God, 14 years ago. So I was working on Bay street and I, as I was, I said before, I was working with like very high net worth clients. So, um, clients who had millions of dollars liquid, uh, not just like a net worth on their house. Like we're talking about, like I would, we were managing portfolios that were like five, $10 million. And so what, but they were private clients. They were like individuals, not companies. And one thing that was so shocking to me, um, when the crisis happened is that the conversations I was having, which I loved it. Like I said, like our clients were great. I was so engaged with them, like still doing the financial planning thing with them they were freaking out. And I'm like, but you still have $8 million left. Like, I remember, I remember being like 25 and being like, what? I know you've lost a lot as a percentage, but I think things are good. Like, I would never say that I, you know, you got to be there with your person. But I remember thinking that in my head, my 25 year old brain was like broken. And then I remember being like, um, with all my friends who were 25 and getting laid off and all these things were happening to them and, and feeling that economic uncertainty at such a young age. Like you graduate from post-secondary and you're like, here I come world. And then it's like, boom, not no dice. It was like, holy shit. Like that is scary. And so I remember a lot of people saying to me, I would love to get financial advice, but like, I don't have a million dollars. Like I can't just go and get some and I don't want to be sold something at the bank. 
So I think New School was born from the combination of two things. One, um, a realization among people that the financial services industry is selling you product. I don't think that two generations ago, that was so top of mind. I don't think people went into the bank thinking, you're selling me something. I think people went into the bank being like, help me. And then there was like this huge awakening that happened 15 years ago, especially with the like crash of like, oh, you're selling me a product. Can I really trust that advice? Like, oh, oh, you're making money off of me all the time. And so that happened. And lots of people being underserved because they didn't have a lot of money or like millions of dollars to get good advice. And so I decided in 2010 um, to make a business in Canada that you could, it doesn't matter if you have money or not. So that's advice only as in like, you just pay for time. So I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm not trying to sell you insurance. I'm not trying to sell you mutual funds, nothing. You just pay for my time and I'll give you a holistic view of your life, like a financial plan. And, you know, if you come to me and you, you're like, I don't know if I should do this or like, like the classic one, not for young, not for young people when we were starting out, but now it's like, do I pay off the mortgage or put in my RSP? Well, if I'm, if I'm managing your RSP, I'm pretty sure I'm going to tell you to put in the RSP, but because I'm not, I have the flexibility of saying what's an unbiased. And so New School was born of the need to service people to give good quality financial advice affordably and um, unbiasedly so that young people, old people, not rich people could all get the same level of advice that the super wealthy are getting just because they happen to have access to people with like letters behind their name and, and not get sold something retail. So that's how it started. That's so brilliant. And, and gives you that trust because I think there is this like, not to speak on behalf of everyone, but I sense that there's more of a general distrust of banking. And so people don't know where to go. So it's like, okay, I want to make moves on my finances, but I don't even know where to start. I think that is just worth its weight in gold. So amazing. What, when do you think people should start learning about financial literacy? Like I turn 32 next month and I can say, even with a business degree, I'm like, why was this not more part of the conversation? And like, why are we not learning this in elementary school and high school? Like, at what point do you think someone's old enough to start talking about financial literacy? And where and how should that education start? And I mean, as the young of mom boys, when would you have those conversations? So I, I already am with my five year olds. Um, it's basic, obviously, but I it's funny. So he said something to me, like, a few months ago and he just he wanted a bakugan it's like they're pogs anyways and uh he's like he left his bakugan in kindergarten and lost it and i was like well that's that right and he was like well we can just get another one and i was like what do you what do you think we just get another one how does that work and he's like well we go to the store and you just use your your magic card thing and i was like oh my god uh, you think that this is literally a money grows on tree thing like you have no concept that I'm actually paying for something here. So I realized that they don't see cash anymore. Like even at five, when I was a kid, I remember lining up at the bank. My parents had that little bank card and they would, and you'd like watch them put checks into them, give them to a teller. Like you would, there was like the, on a Friday, you could, there was a concept of like, this is money. It's going to the bank and I'm taking out a hundred dollars or something. Like I saw money. These kids don't see money period. And so and even like, I remember taking a taxi with my mom and she paid the taxi driver. Now it's like, it's like an Uber app. They don't even, it's like money doesn't even exist. So we started using actual cash, um, giving him like, you know, if he helps me fold the laundry and put it away, I'll give him a dollar or something like that. And then he has like a little piggy bank. Um, and then buying his own toys. Now we go to like, 
the store where it's like $2 for something. And he brings it in a little per like change wallet. It's about five. And I make him do the thing and like pay for it and like feel the loss of money. And he gets upset and frustrated. And I'm like, yeah. And then he's (laughs) like, can I do more laundry? I'm like, heck yes, you can. So like, we're trying to just introduce the concept. He has no idea what's a quarter versus a dollar. He's five. But um, what he's, what we're trying to introduce is like, you do a job, you get the money, you spend the money, and then you don't have the money. And then you have to work hard and get it again. And it's a cycle. That's all I can introduce at this point is that things cost money. And that's why mom and dad work. That's like what we say. And then I think actual learning about money um, can start in high school. But I will say this, um, like in Ontario and Canada, um, it is, it's, it's taught in grade 10, I think in most schools. However, that's recent. And um, I think it's one of those things like there's like, there's also like, law 101 in grade 11 but that doesn't mean you can be a lawyer or like you know home ec that doesn't mean you know how to bake and so I think what the benefit of doing personal finance in high school is that you're just putting things on people's radars like Mm -hmm. this exists taxes exist it doesn't mean that you're going to be armed with the information that you can absolutely do your own taxes when you're 21 like that's not I don't think that's the purpose I think the purpose is putting it on your radar And I really think, and like learning about those things, like these exist, these are concepts that are important to you. And like, why is it important to you? But I really think we get to cut our teeth and our finances in post-secondary. It's like this, uh, like once you leave high school, whether you go right to work, whether you go to college, whether you live at home, whether you live outside of school, whatever, as soon as you get that first, actually, I think even maybe sooner that as soon as you get your first job, I feel like you're making your own money, but really the thing is paying your own rent. As soon as you pay your own bills, buy your own groceries and earn your own money, that is your application. It is your learning trial by fire. And I think that is the most important time to learn financial concepts for the first time. Mm-hmm. I think we can all learn. I still have some of my clients who are like 55 and they're like, I never knew. Um, so I, so like, I think that's also important is not to be like afraid to ask questions no matter how old you are. But if you are listening to this and you're a young person in your life, I feel like the application of it is how you actually learn about money. And that really happens with high stakes, not just like a Bakugan at the dollar store um, is like when you're paying your own bills yeah. and buying your own food, that those two things are the fastest way to learn how you handle money, what your money habits are, all that stuff. Yeah. Well, and I love that you highlighted too, you're never too old to learn and to ask questions because I think that there's a lot of, and I've, I've felt it. Like, I think there's a lot of shame around you should know, or you're a successful person in this area of your life. So you should be knowledgeable in all areas. I always say I stunted my own growth by dating an accountant in when I was 20 for like a number of years. And so I just had blind faith and trust and like, oh, he's my person and he's going to figure it all out for me. And I wasn't proactively learning and setting myself up for success because I had just been like, oh, you know, he's got it. Little did I know. He did not get it and I I got it, but you know, so then I was like, okay, I've got some learning to do, but there's always time to turn around. And that's why professionals like you exist, of course, because we can't all be experts in every area and you're the expert. in. No, I don't want to be the expert in everything. I'm such a big fan of, and and I tried to do everything myself when I was in my twenties too, because I was so obsessed with saving a buck. And then one of the big sage advice pieces that I have to give is like, oh my gosh, like the, the, faster you can curate that down and get the right to the heart of it and put like get the support and stuff like I think I would have even been further along younger if I had hired a team faster if I had done like I tried 
got a bookkeeper quick and sooner that all those things that I was like, well, I can do this myself. So I should do this myself. Um, I did. And then when I finally just like bit the bullet and took the risk, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, that now I see why people do this. And so I feel like really trusting some, uh, re, like trusting people and sometimes outsourcing things and hiring people to get there faster is like actually such, even though it costs a little bit up front, it's, it's mm-hmm. often so worth it in the long run. Well, and I like the sentiment of do it once and do it right. So it's invest once in it, but do it properly versus invest a small amount again and again and again and again, and it probably costs you more in the long run. So speaking of panic-based decisions, I know that inflation, of course, is part of the conversation. I'm having it with clients talking about groceries, you know, like how do we navigate things? So what advice do you have with people who are maybe struggling with that impact or just stressed and worried and maybe starting to like do the tightening of the purse strings because they're panicking? Do you have any words of wisdom? I think, I think that at some point um, there is a tightening of purse strings that needs to happen. But what I would, the advice that I would offer, and we're doing this myself, even I'm feeling I'm feeding three, like four of us at home and they, I don't want to, I want to try to buy good, like, like, um, you know, groceries that that I feel excited about that kind of thing it's getting harder and harder to make it work within the confines of what we thought we would spend um and so we're reducing other things in your life to make space for that if that's important to you I think is um what you're doing and I have this philosophy I talk about this in the first book in worry free money um called emotional return on investment so looking at all of your spending that you do outside of your bills actually including your bills because some bills are bills, but maybe they're not providing value, right? So um, having a look at everywhere that your money goes every month and rating it truly going through methodically and rating it on a scale of one to five being like one five being like, this is the most emotionally satisfying expense that I have. And I would go into debt for this and I wouldn't care because I love it so much. For me, that's covering my gray hair. And uh, I've, I've been great since I was 21. And um the I, and I have finance and I have gone into debt for it so <laughs> and when I quit my job yeah so uh, um and that's a book too but uh I and then one being like I I spend money on this and I resent it mm-hmm. every time I see it on my credit card bill I feel like an idiot it makes me feel frustrated it's one of those things that I do out of boredom convenience laziness, whatever. It's like one of those things. And so um, for me, that's always taking a taxi or something like that. I always feel like after I did it, unless, unless there are some taxis, I'm like, nope, five out of five, because it was like pissing rain. And I had my kids with me and it was like the word, you know, whatever it is. Right. And so, um, so I think going through your spending and really identifying the happy versus the unhappy spending, and then mindfully and consciously cutting out the ones and the twos and making like hard rules for yourself on those. Because at the end of the day, money is basic math. You have to spend less than you make. So something has to give. If the cost of groceries is going up, we have to eat. So something has to go down. So the way to do that in the least painful way is to systematically reduce things that are, that are things you spend money on that make you feel like garbage after. And then only leaving space for the five out of fives four out of fives and even the threes, which are kind of like neutral, like whatever. And so I think, I think that's like my big tip there is that something has to give, you're going to have to reduce somewhere else, but let's see if we can make it as painless as possible. 
Oh, that's such good advice. Yeah. And like negotiate on the things you can and, you know, nutrition and having to fuel your body is not one of those. I would love to know, how do you feel about New Year's resolutions? Do you have any goals? And I'm curious about this because I was creeping as one does on social media and I died over every skateboarding. I was like obsessed (laughs) with your skateboarding videos. And so this was like a couple or few years of you have been learning to skateboard and So do you have any resolutions? Is skateboarding still on your radar? And how did that come to be? Because I think that is absolutely amazing. Yeah, I'm going skateboarding next, uh, like Wednesday night. There's an indoor skate park nearby and a couple of the moms in my neighborhood were going to go. So the skateboarding started as a way during the pandemic. Um, I'm a person who likes to like go learn new things and do things and everything in Toronto was closed forever. Like it was the longest lockdown. <laughs> Plus I have little kids, so I can't go far. can't do much. Like I can't be like, bye. I'm, I'm headed out every night during bedtime to do this course or whatever. So skateboarding, there was a, another, um, mom in the neighborhood. I knew her through, through work actually. And I knew that she wanted to learn skateboarding and she started this this, to go in this park down the street from us after bedtime. And I just, the two of us went down to this park after bedtime and just start trying not to fall off. And then we loved it. And then um, she was posting it on um, Instagram and some other moms down in another neighborhood were doing the same thing and found us. So we united troops and then started meeting at a proper skate park instead of just like at like a playground. (laughs) And then the combination of the two groups of moms, and they were a little bit more um, ahead of of me and this other mom that started it over here. So we actually learned from, from them like a lot. And then it slowly became this thing where lots of other women would join and women identifying people would drop in with us because everyone was like a beginner in their own way. And there was no pretension or like anything other than like good times. And so over the two years, um, you know, I'm trying to learn how to drop in. Like, that's like my big goal (laughs) and like do the, and pump on the ramp. So uh, it's been a really fun adventure. And like, I love seeing my kids see me practicing and trying and try falling a lot. So many falls. And, um, and like getting back up and like doing it anyways, even though it's scary and it, it scares me. I, I think that's the other thing. It makes me feel alive because I'm actually terrified and it's not just fake, fake scared. It's real scared. Like when I'm standing at the top of a ramp, I'm, I'm trembling. I'm actually scared. And, and then it's like, do it anyways. And it's like, okay. And you hurl yourself down a hill and onto concrete and 38 and it's like what the hell am I doing and it's like something there's something about that that is very I don't know satisfying for me is that you're facing something head-on and and like getting through it and there's something about skateboarding too that's wild that I um didn't expect to enjoy so much about about that is that the with skateboarding the more you pull back the more likely to hurt yourself you are and the more you commit the better you'll do. So the faster you go, the less likely you'll fall. The more you hurl yourself down the ramp, the you're going to land it. When it's when you pull back that you fall, that you fall like all that you feel every bump, that you fly off your board, like all that stuff. And so there's something wildly satisfying about convince like 
hurtling yourself, like throwing yourself into something that you're scared of knowing that if you're scared, you're going to hurt yourself. And the more brave you are, the more chances you have to land it. Like, isn't that so poetic? I don't know. I love it. I was literally just thinking like, what a beautiful metaphor for life and like motherhood and business and yes, all of it. It's so you. cool. That's it's amazing. So cool. Yeah. And have- it is. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, is there any, any like new projects or goals that you're working on? Um, well, I'm going to keep skateboarding. So that's, that's something that I think I just like do now, which is super fun. Um, and I do, you asked earlier too, like, do I believe in New Year's resolutions? And I want to say no, but I absolutely do. I want to say no, because I think people get really ticked off at the idea of New Year's resolutions. Cause they're like, why not any time of the year? But I fundamentally believe that there is something about the turning of the calendar year. And maybe it's because it's in finances. There's an actual, it's a new tax year. It's RSP season. It's all, it's actually an, it's actually significant in the financial world. Um, when it, when it goes from like December 31st to the first. And so, and, and we've also just come out of a period of overspending from, for so many people over the holiday season. And so I do think that at least in my world, there is this sense of like a fresh start or, and, and it's a really good time of year just to look at it the year and be like, what do I want to get out of this year? So I think I have a problem with resolutions in the sense of like, I want to pay off my three credit cards in the next six weeks. Okay. So like those kinds of things are going to lead someone to fail. It's like, a, like it might be like a really aggressive plan. That's not sustainable that I have an issue with where it's like hardcore for three weeks or whatever. But I think setting an intention for the year or setting some sort of like overarching goal is a really healthy thing to do, especially in your financial life. Like I'm going to manage my debt. I'm going to sit down and map it out or whatever it is. Um, and I do, I absolutely, well, obviously this book came out. So that's a huge part of, of um, something that like is a theme for 2023 for me is, you know, hopefully I, hopefully this book gets some, I don't know, hopefully it get, gets in the right hands of the right people and they changes their lives or they, they get something from it. So it was all for, it was all important stuff. So I hope that people read it. And then I also think um, I want to take off as much time as I can this summer with my family um, to be like, I would like to do like um, Northern stuff. Like I want to be near nature and on the water and all that kind of stuff. So that's my big goal. Oh, I love it. Yes. And very well-deserved after this book tour and everything that you've got going. So with that said, I want to be mindful of your time and I want to finish off with a few like rapid fire questions. Yeah, great. Um, One is who is your biggest role model or do you have one? Ooh, I have so many. So I don't know that I could say my biggest, but um, one person that I consistently look to for advice and guidance is this is so like so cheesy, but like my mom, she is, Literally, she just is a such a forward thinker and has always been and um, has like a really great sense of humor and a sense of adventure. And like, I don't know, she and she also just like always can. She's so sage with her counsel. Um, and she is my mom is 69 years old and she is still like writing. She just came back from uh, like a biking tour in in like in Europe and like she's so vivacious and alive and I just feel like she is a person that I look up to and I'm like you are who I want to be when I'm 69 years old so um anyway so I would say my mom is my biggest or more and for the longest but I do have lots of role models I think I we have role models every day in our life I mean you can't go wrong with mom what a great one and what is the best advice you've ever received 
best advice I ever received. I think it would be something along the lines of this might sound silly, but I find myself thinking it a lot and I really see it play out is that um, like, you know, when people say, ah, life is short and it's like, I'm not being morbid when I say this, but um, life is short, like make the best of it. And I, I see that with my clients all the time, like people save up and then something happens and they never even got to use it. And they never went on the trips because they were, you know what I mean? Like life is short. And I do think that there's more, there is so much to life to be lived. And um, I want to make sure that I don't, I, I, I enjoy the time that I've got while I'm here. Yeah. That's amazing advice. Okay. Best book or resource you'd recommend to people, obviously. three incredible books and you're allowed to be biased on this page we will of course support all of your books I know um from the financial perspective yeah I feel like I feel like any of mine for sure um but the one of the best books I ever read like like life-changing one was wintering have you read wintering or heard of it no I've not heard of it okay so I read winter it just came out in 2020 and again I was in like a um, like it was like the, it was COVID. It was a dark time for everyone. And it's this unbelievable book. It's, um, it's nonfiction, but she does it through storytelling, which is kind of like what I do with my books too. Um, and so it's really readable and it's basically this woman's dark time in her life. And she, um, it's, she calls it the win- a, a winter period of her life. Right. So like dark times are winters in your life and they happen like cyclically. And, um, she goes around to all these, people in the world who live with winter in a real way, like people in like Northern Sweden, like Alaska, like all this stuff. And she, you know, what are their ways that they deal with winter? And then she takes like actual physical winter. And then she takes those tips and then applies them to her emotional self and the winter of her life. And it's, it's beautifully written, wonderfully done. And it, it made me take a polar dip. It made me do night walks in the, in the middle of the winter. And when the, fierce cold was on my face and like my snot was freezing it'd be like oh that feels good instead of being like this is the worst I hate the dark I hate the cold and it's just such a lifeline and such a wonderful book to remind us of like even winter can be beautiful oh thank you for that recommendation yes especially speaking to all of us Canadians I think we probably all could benefit from that attitude and perspective <laughs> It's, it's literally, it's such a good book to remind us that winter is not the worst. Oh, thank you so much. And finally, last but definitely not least, for everyone who wants to follow along with your financial journey, your skateboarding journey, your journey in life, motherhood <laughs> business, where can they find you? Uh, okay, so website-wise, um, www.newschoolfinance.com. That's kind of the hub where you can find the books, you can book a session, you can find the online um, DIY courses, like all that stuff is there. And then on social media and the skateboarding is um, like the best places on Instagram, which is um, at Shan Lee Simmons. And that's where I, that's where I'm at. Yes. And we will link everything for you on my website. And I just cannot thank you enough. I have learned so much and I know everybody listening will have as well. And you may just be hearing from me for one of those calls in the very near future. So I hope so. I I appreciate your time and good luck with everything. I am going to be ordering those books immediately. Oh, that's so good. And um, yeah, thanks so much for having me on. This was great. My pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. 
That's all the time we have together this week. Thank you so much for being here with Shannon and I. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode each Sunday. You can always find me on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at KY Wellness Co. More details about all episodes can be found at kywellness.ca under the podcast tab. Don't forget to move your body, nourish your body, be kind to yourself, be kind to others. See you next week and keep yourself well.